Welcome to the Vaccination Station. My name is Dave, and today I'm speaking with Nikhil Ottar. Nice to meet you. Hey, mate. Nice to meet you in person. Like, I, I've seen your Facebook page, love the stuff that you do. The, Thank you. the graphics are great, and yeah. Nikhil, can you help the audience to get to know you a bit better by telling me three sure. things that you think the audience might find interesting? Okay, sure. Um, so yeah, I guess um, first off, yep, I was diagnosed at 17 and I've had two bone marrow transplants, which means I've had three blood types in my life, which is fact number one. Fact number two is uh, I'm, I'm a medical student, but I've also worked on tumor vaccine research. So I've got a degree based on that as well. And third, this year I actually have five separate types of vaccines. <laughs> so, and a, and a bunch of, I guess more if you count the boosters or the, the you know, <laughs> the second third doses yeah and what was your diagnosis yeah so i was diagnosed with leukemia aml it's called acute myeloid leukemia at 17 so it's yeah it's not a good one to have um and it's also very rare to get it at 17 of course that was a huge shock when we found out but yeah i mean found out and then found out we needed a bone marrow transplant and that's that's a process i guess that not many to not many people have heard of and the the key thing about it that i want to bring up is that it's actually not your bone marrow that they need but rather the the blood stem cells the hematopoietic stem cells which which they want to harvest and get into your get into your body so the the idea is right um with leukemia your your bone marrow cells the the stem cells they become cancerous so you want to get a huge dose of chemo and radiation first off and what the bone marrow does is, is because it makes your donor's bone marrow afterwards, it allows you to get a high dose of chemo. So once you kill off your old, you kill off your old cells, which were cancerous, you get someone's new ones in, you get a huge dose of chemo. But the second thing that they want to do, and this is something they intentionally want to do, is though you're matched to them, there's always going to be slight differences between you and them. Your immune systems are also going to be primed against different things. So right in your marrow, you're going to get their immune cells killing the cancer cells where your cancer cells where your sorry your bone marrow and the naive t-cells that you produced couldn't so they actually get like a long-term immunological attack against cancer which is almost an immunotherapy you could call it but i don't think it's classified as that but it's it's the same sort of principle you're getting an immune system fired up against against cancer so that's that's the reason why they do it and yeah the reason why i wanted to make sure people knew it was not actually your bone marrow you need is that in over 95 percent of cases um you actually on the donor end you never have to have your bone marrow invaded at all so to join the registry to get your tissue type done in most countries you need a swab in australia you can get a swab or you can also do it while uh, donating blood and this is something you have to specifically ask for so you need to ask them can i join the bone marrow donor registry when you do that interview before giving blood to join it and that's really key to do and at that point all they need is an extra few mils of blood right when you're giving 400 or 500 mils anyway 
And similar sort of thing, all you need is a swab of the cheek. And even if you have a one, if you're one in 400 who get called up every year to, to, to donate to someone and be the direct reason why someone's alive, in 95% of cases, they actually take your stem cells from your peripheral. So they take it from your arm and they put it back in the other arm and they, they siphon out the cells that they need. The, the hematopoietic stem cells, they give you a medication to help it come out into your regular blood. And then that's it on your end as the donor. On the, on the recipient end, we get infused with the cells. It settles in your bone marrow. And after you get that huge dose of chemo and radiation, whatever you need, or they also do smaller doses these days. But after you get that, they chuck in someone else's and you actually start producing their blood cells, including their immune cells, which means like you can change blood types and I've, because I've had two, I've actually had three blood types in my life. And that's the only way you can change blood types as a mammal. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is uh, an awful lot to unpack. So I'll, I'll just sort of yeah. see if we can break it down step by step for the audience. So what you're saying <laughs> is that the, the type of cancer you have, which is leukemia attacks your bone marrow, which is part of the immune system by the stem cells that it contains and you yeah, need to get yeah, that replaced hence the need for a transplant and the transplant also allows you to repair your immune system and make it strong enough to receive doses of chemo and and radiotherapy I, i'd say um okay i probably explained it in a in a weird way i guess so cancer when it happens in leukemia what happens is your bone marrow, your hematopoietic stem cells, the, the blood stem cells, it, it starts producing really faulty uh, cells that don't work. They cause like, you know, huge problems. They, they overload your whole system. And that's why you see your white cell counts rise. And, and that's, that's all well, some white cells counts in some cancers. And then, yeah, so that's, that's something you don't want to have, right? That's, that's a whole cancer process. So what they do is they give you radiation and, Chemo, they mostly give chemo in blood cancers. They can do something called total body irradiation to younger patients too. And that's to control the cancer cells to, control, to bring them down. But often they, they come back and it's really hard to kill, you know, the original um, cancer cells, especially in, you know, aggressive acute myeloid leukemia, which I had. So what they need to do is do a bone marrow transplant. And that not only allows you to get a huge dose of radiation and chemo, if you need radiation, some people don't, um, that, that allows you to get that huge dose, a dose that would normally kill off all of your bone marrow forever, right? So it's a huge, huge dose. And that's what they need to do. And then if you put in someone else's bone marrow afterwards, the, the hematopoietic stem cells, sorry, you get their blood being made in you, including their immune cells. So any like cancer, right? When you have even a few tiny number of cells left over, they can repopulate. They, they've got survival advantages as cancer cells and they can essentially um, cause cancer again, recurrence, right? Um, relapse. So in order to get a continual lasting attack against those cancer cells that were messed up, you have someone else's immune system in you now that's producing cells that can kill off those, those tiny numbers of cells. It also attacks yourself. So that's why you can see my skin has, you know, uh, it's got some scarring. My other organs are affected too. So that's a downside. That's the biggest side effect that can kill you as well. But 
it, they've gotten much better at treating that. And in the end, you are alive, right? So the trade-off is is much better towards the other end. So you want to get a bone marrow transplant to get that to get a huge dose of chemo and radiation that would kill off cancers at a higher rate. But also you want to get that lasting immune attack against any remaining cancer cells um, that the that your original, you know, cells, your your own cells used to be. Yeah. So in the process, you said you can actually end up changing your blood type because you've, you're basically introducing a new blood type from your from the donor into your body. How does that work then? Because as I understand it, you can't have two blood types in the one body. Yeah. Um, it, it so actually, do they have to simply flush out? Yeah. So what, what happens is in most cases, you get 100% of your cells actually being produced by your donor. So you actually have someone else's uh, hematopoietic stem cells take over. So you don't have two, two um, blood types running around in you. You just have the one. And yeah, I mean, your, your HLA subsets, that's basically like your tissue type that's presented on a lot of your, your cells in your body, they are matched to your donor. So you don't have huge attack occurring against you. But as I said, because you, there are like, you know, slight differences and there's a whole field of study on this on, um, on graft rejection in bone marrow transplants, graft versus host disease, it's called. Um, but basically that lasting immune attack against you does happen, but it's much lower if you have a, a good match. That's why you need to have more people on that registry because matching to the stranger is about one in a million. So ideally they, they would look for a match within your immediate family first then. Yes, indeed. And you have like a 30% chance of matching with a sibling and my brother was useless. <laughs> that's what I, that's, that's how I joke about it, but nah, he just wasn't a match, but yeah, in most cases, um, if you do have siblings, they'll do prefer them because, yeah, you get less graph as a host, which is, yeah, which is good in most cases. So, yeah. So let's just back up a little bit. Um, what's your primary qualification and where are you studying now? Yeah. So I've, okay, I started studying medicine the year after I got diagnosed. So 2011, but it's, it's been the longest medical degree ever because I ended up doing I had, you know, relapses and other things in the middle. It's a whole, it takes doctors like an hour to interview me. Yeah, I, I then did a, a medical research degree, which is, a, so it's basically like our honors program. Because, uh, yeah, our university, um, we had, you know, it's, it's a newer university, so they didn't have an honors program set up. And yeah, so I worked on tumor vaccines in that time at the Ingham Institute and published a review on them. And yeah, now... I'm back into med school again. I was thinking of doing a PhD because I wasn't sure if I could get back into med school, but um, yeah, I managed to find a couple of drugs that actually helped me. So I'm able to, you know, get back into that grind, but I've also, you know, got some other things I've got, I'm working on med tech startup as well. And yeah, so I've got a bunch of things that I'm doing. <laughs> This might sound a bit redundant, but what was it particularly uh, that attracted to you uh, you to medicine as a career? Yeah, I mean, like for me, I think it's I've always wanted to do it. Even as a kid, I watched um, MASH growing up and I loved uh, Hawkeye Pierce, you know, that guy who'd 
he'd always like be there for people and and you know never compromise his um his uh values and and always be there for people but also have a laugh and you know um make people happy outside of you know it's not just your health condition it's also your whole persona right your whole um psyche as well that needs to be treated too and so yeah but once i got diagnosed i think doubly so i wanted to become you know someone who could be there for someone who's been through it you know i i had that sort of experience of knowing how actually uh, someone else who's been through what you've been through the whole cancer struggle like their words just stick more than any any medical professionals words ever will and i imagine like if you could have a medical professional i could do that for you as well right that would be amazing but um yeah at the same time i realized also that like you know other ways you can help like research if you can create you know new devices or new standards and things like that 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 creates change you actually can impact more people right so if i can't get back into becoming a clinician because i still have some health dramas worst case scenario i can continue researching i can continue creating medical devices and hopefully funding research as well in the future so yeah that's that's my goal i guess what advice would you give to someone who's considering a career in medicine yeah okay so I think first off, uh, this might sound like, you know, <laughs> a bit like awful in a way, but like, it's actually a very, very tough degree, right? And it's like the, the you know, really ace students, they find it difficult. And there's huge rates of depression and suicide and things like that associated with it. And that's because you you have to give up your life to it in many many ways so i think if you're going into it like if you're thinking you know it's a stable career it's it's great in that way yeah it's it's actually something you got to be aware of is if you want to get into it for the money or something like that you could put half the effort in and make double the money if you went into finance or something like that so if you're there you have to be there for people because I think even the science sort of challenge that that is associated with it, after a while in medicine, you end up treating in 90% of cases, the same sort of things and it becomes routine. Um, so there is that aspect of it too. Um, and it also, you also can't help a lot of people. So I think that's another big reason why there is a lot of depression and burnout in medicine. So I think you have to be fully aware of that before you get on. Having said that, like that's also the beauty of it is that you can you also and I, this is like the I, I've become a cynical person over my years, I guess, going into the not just the um, medical system as a patient, but also as you know a founder of a of a startup. I realize there's there's just a huge business in it. I realize doctors don't have time, all that kind of stuff. But getting back into med school this year, I just saw like the humanity that that doctors also get to get to instill into their patients like they do the tiny little things behind the scenes that you don't see as a patient like they'll go out of the way to make sure a, a patient gets to see their puppy in hospital right if you if they if they ask for it if they've had a you know if they've had a tough go of it they'll 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 do those little things that make a huge difference and they like yeah like nowhere else in no other profession would you also see people treating people for free right or giving people like hours of their time for free. Like, so that's, it's really, 
it really is awesome to see that that aspect of medicine, that that care for people, is definitely still there. Yeah. So be aware of it that it's a very very tough degree, but once you get in, if you're there for people, you'll love it. And I, I really do love it in that sense. So that's, I guess, my my biggest piece of advice: make sure you're you're committed and ready for it, but also realize it's not as you know amazing as it is painted out to be in medical TV shows and things like that. So, yeah. Thank you. That that's a very insightful response. So, as an ongoing cancer patient, then you are severely immunocompromised. Talk to me about what that means to you in in practical terms what does that what does that mean for for your day-to-day life yeah so i guess um there's a difference in that immunocompromised um you can be like you can have an issue which causes you to have essentially no immune system or you could be getting through chemo and you have no immune system you could be immunosuppressed as well where you have various medications or various conditions which make your immune system less functional, right? So there's, there's a bit of a difference there in immunocompromised and immunosuppressed. So I am luckily immunosuppressed in that I do have somewhat of an immune system and it's, it's a decent immune system because it's kept me going and I do respond to vaccines and things like that, which is great. But it is like a reality, like even before COVID, I used to wear masks in in really populated environments when i was in my hospital placements i used to wear masks then and yeah i mean that's just the reality of the situation i've been to the icu a couple times with the flu there may have been times where i didn't realize it because i've been met called and and yeah i've been in icu and not known what happened and i still don't so like yeah two times to the flu though like a, a preventable disease like that's, that's like, you know, the reality that people like us have to face. And every time I've got this chronic lung condition too, as a result of the bone marrow transplant, the, the, the chronic graft versus host disease, which means like, you know, my lung function is sitting 60 to 65% right now. And it's sort of been going uh, down. It was going down for a bit, but it stayed stable for a while. But every infection could sort of cause that to go down by a couple more percentage points. I could get some further scarring in my lungs or small airway disease. And that's something you just have to really be conscious of. And I think COVID's made a lot of other people conscious of that. But like, I think like, you know, the rhetoric you hear, oh, it's, you know, you hear people talk about, oh, they they have underlying symptoms. So that death doesn't really count. Like that kind of stuff, it, it hurts, but also, it's, it is a reality in that, like, that's something that we have to face more than others. And now I, I'd say a lot of people, like, you know, they're getting back out, they're getting back into things, which is like, you know, good for the economy. And it is at a stage, I think, where we have to somewhat live with COVID. Um, but that fear is even higher because now we've got, you know, a disease that's 30 times, 20, 30 times more deadly than the flu running around. Um, that we've got to be aware of. And yeah, I mean, if you have elderly parents, if you need chemo, you've got to get your immune system reset via bone marrow transplant like me, like that's something you're always gonna to have to be aware of. Hopefully though, like the thing is, I've had um, a couple of shots of Pfizer and after those first two shots, I actually didn't develop an immune response. They were measuring it in me as a bone marrow transplant patient. There were, you know, studies published and there's there's a bit of early data showing, you know, that up to 40% don't get a response um, after two. But 
three doses. It's not actually a booster. It's a it's a now a routine thing for bone marrow transplant patients to get three doses. And after my third, I developed neutralizing antibodies. So that's antibodies that weren't caused by a COVID infection previously. So the vaccine does work. So a lot of people like you should definitely ask your doctors. Like there's a there's I guess early on they didn't know all that kind of thing. So there were a lot of rumors. They didn't have evidence to show that vaccinations worked in populations. So they were they were hesitating on it, but a lot of people can get a bunch of vaccines, especially inactivated or non-live vaccines. Um, a lot of people do can qualify them and they arguably should be getting them at higher rates because they're more at risk. So definitely ask your doctors about that if you if you are concerned. And yeah, if you're if you're on that boat and you have a lot of family members who who may be on that boat too. So make sure you spread that message around too. Ask your doctors because you can definitely still benefit from vaccines. Or if you can't, at least you'll know (laughs) and you'll be safer. It's been quite frustrating to see throughout this pandemic, the number of people who said, oh, I don't need a vaccine. I've got an immune system. Well, we've all got immune systems, you, you know, this, and, and everyone who's been killed by this, uh, by this virus also had an immune system. So that there seems to be a very common mis- misunderstanding about what the immune system is, how capable it is, and the... Um, the extent to which it can protect you from any given virus or or disease. Now, I have two autoimmune diseases. I have ankylosing spondylitis and ulcerative colitis, which is why I can't donate blood. Um, And the awkward thing is that the medication I take for one can aggravate the other if if I'm not careful. So it's a bit of a juggling act from from time to time. It doesn't mean I'm immunosuppressed or immunocompromised, but it it does mean that my immune system is, for want of a better term, I guess, slightly overstimulated in ways. And I I need need anti-inflammatories to keep it in check. But of course, that doesn't mean I I can't have vaccines. I can have, you know, all the regular vaccines I would normally have. And what people don't seem to get is that just because you have an immune system doesn't mean that your immune system is robust enough to deal with a disease it's never encountered before. And that's the whole point of vaccines, to train your autoimmune system in the safest possible way by exposing it under controlled conditions to a virus or a disease so that it knows what to do with it and and how to beat it. And it's been just really bizarre to see people talking as if a vaccine is something redundant or something they don't need simply because they have an immune system. Um, The other thing, of course, is that they forget that because we all live in a society, your decision to have a vaccine or to not have a vaccine immediately affects everyone else around you. Because the moment you become a disease vector, you could potentially infect someone else while being asymptomatic or, or even just having a mild case. And you could end up being the cause of someone else becoming very sick or, or even dying. So this is the whole point of herd immunity. Vaccination allows us to reach herd immunity in in a community very quickly in an, in an efficient and safe way. Yeah, indeed. And I think like um, the most poignant way I've, I've sort of heard it uh, put is by Professor Doherty, who's a Nobel laureate. I met the guy, really nice guy as well. 
And he said that there's like no such thing as natural immunity. So I think like there's, there's this idea that natural is better and that, you know, you're going to be, um, you're going to be, you can just rely on what you have naturally. Well, I think you pointed that out. This is like a, a, a new, like we have had coronaviruses in the past, but they haven't really been as widespread and yeah, we haven't had as much natural immunity build up to this. So it's not really like a concept that you can rely on your immune system. It doesn't care if there's an antigen that's natural or synthetic or anything. It doesn't discriminate in that way. It it's trained to kill off invaders in a very nuanced way and, and create, you know, uh, immediate as well as long lasting memory. And we've got a way to do that in a very, very controlled way that we've now got, you know, results from I think 5 billion plus people to show that it's remarkably safe and it's much more uh, safe and effective than getting the original virus. And the, like, the virus is something that like people have downplayed. We've seen that number 99.97% of people have survived, all that kind of stuff. Like those numbers are pulled out of a hat first off. They're, that's, they're really not accurate, but like, even if that number were correct, like the rates of mortality to a vaccine is like one in a million. It's still like a hundred times safer to get the vaccine than it is to like, if you were to assume that was correct. So I think like, I think it's exposed that a lot of people don't respond to numbers, right? Too well. And they don't understand the concept of, of numbers. Like, I think I saw a post um, somewhere today where someone said, oh, there's been uh, 6 million deaths and 200 million cases, 300 million cases, something like that. That's not 2%. And he wrote 0.02, which is 2%, right? Um, so I think like, that's, that's like, you know what though? Like a lot of people, they go through high school, they, did, they didn't pay attention or they didn't learn science to the degree we did. And like, honestly, like I've forgotten half the stuff I've learned in history, right? I think it's, there's like, it's there's it's not a failure so much but it's just we've got to understand that as as science communicators and and scientists that normal people aren't doing this every day they don't know what mrna dna is and so they are more susceptible to lies the thing is it's so much easier to make up and spread and it's so much more alarming it triggers those you know those natural sort of instincts that we have of fear of of things like that that's what um anti-vax tap into right that fear sort of concept of oh this vaccine causes something it's so much more easy to spread that when you can make up things and you can just get like these alarming memes and messages across and when you also pander to a population that's skeptical and that they are like these kind of things they they propagate so we've got to understand that when we talk to people especially with the covid vaccine i think we're seeing a lot more people who are not anti-vaxxers so much they're just scared right and they are just hesitant so we've got to find better ways of communicating those those things and you know it might be a mix of things we've got to know the facts ourselves so we can educate our family members and do so in a in a nice way where possible and we also like i think like you know a systemic problem is we need to show the stories of of all the things that have gone wrong with COVID a lot more and that kind of thing. It's, 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 it's there, it's happening, but it's, it's not being seen as much as 
anti-vax sort of stories because it also it's it's you know it's less alarming it's it is just the norm so there's there's it's hard though <laughs> as you know we both know to, to try and combat this thing but yeah i guess that is what it is <laughs> it is very ironic and frustrating that in the middle of a pandemic the message this vaccine is safe and effective doesn't have as much traction as or oh, I don't understand this vaccine. It sounds a bit dodgy. Maybe it'll do something nasty to me or nasty to you. So stay away from it. It's uh, you can understand mm. on a certain level because you know people are naturally risk averse. They'll be worried about things they don't understand. But it's the kind of message that shouldn't be getting traction in a pandemic. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah. No. No. But and there is the the factor. The fact of the matter is, it'll gain you votes and viewers. And that's why it, it like people are tapping into it. That it's now become something that that people can profit from. And that's that's essentially the reason why it's there. And it's it's really sad to see, but we've just got to like without being able to do anything else, we've just got to tell people the truth and also try and do so in like engaging ways wherever we can. And yeah. Thank you so much for giving me your time today. If people want yeah. to follow your work, where can they find you online? Yeah. So my name is Nikhil Orta. So it's at Nikhil Orta on all sort of channels. So Facebook, um, I've got a page called Nikhil Orta, Musings of a Med Student Patient. And yeah, it's funny. I get I get restricted a lot. And now I'm like at risk of getting unpublished there because uh, my latest violation was calling an anti-vaxxer a COVID idiot and they got reported that got reported for hate speech. So I, I, you can't, and because of pandemic reasons, you can't appeal it. It's, 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 it's fascinating how that works. Hey, eh? then I've got my, I've got like a website where I like, you know, publish blogs on things like the pandemic and why and how, like I made one recently on how 90% vaccinated countries are actually coping really well. And, they, they're seeing, though they are seeing a bunch of cases, their hospitalization rates in Denmark is getting like as like five or 600 cases a day, similar population to my state, New South Wales. And they're only seeing about two deaths a day at 90% plus vaccinated. So, and they're only seeing, uh, I think like 13 or so beds used in, in um, I think it's, uh, Oh, I forgot the country now. It's off the top of my head. I think it's Portugal. They're only seeing 13 ICU beds used in their entire population of 10 million people, despite COVID you know, cases being up. And that's because they are almost fully vaccinated. So that we're at a stage now where unfortunately it seems like we're, we've given up. But yeah, it seems like vaccination is actually stopping a lot of people from dying and stopping a lot of people who are vulnerable from from getting to the disease so highly recommend like especially as we're getting to a stage now where we're saying oh everyone can just live with it that we still continue to pursue higher rates of vaccination because that's our way out of it so that's that's the latest post i did that's on my website nickyauto.com and yeah just i'm always open to getting dms and and chatting to people too so feel free to message me that's what i love about having that profile being able to talk to people in like, you know, p people who are smart and concerned about science, like that's, that's pretty cool to have. So yeah. Nikhil, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much again. Thank you so much. Yeah. Keep doing what you do. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>